0: Seth, did you see there was a recent UN report on climate change and land use? I know it sounds really nerdy, but it had this really scary warning that the soil is being eroded between 10 and 100 times faster than it's forming, which has some pretty alarming implications for the world's food supply.
1: I did see that. It's, it's really a reminder that the climate crisis is about more than just extreme weather and rising sea levels. It's going to end up being a food crisis, too. Yes, and all this reminded
0: me, this collision of food and climate, of a story from a bit over a century ago of a previous food crisis, which I think we can learn some lessons from today. And it starts with this very similar-sounding warning that was issued in 1898 by a British scientist called William Crookes, And he was an eminent chemist. In fact, he discovered the element thallium. Anyway, he's giving the keynote speech at this science conference, and he starts off by warning the audience that civilized nations stand in deadly peril of not having enough to eat.
1: Interesting. But, But why was that message coming from a chemist?
0: Well, it's because the way that food was being produced at the time in Europe and America depended very heavily on a particular chemical, sodium nitrate, which is dug out of the desert soils in Chile and was being shipped around the world in very large quantities for use as a fertilizer. And this was because in the early 19th century, scientists had figured out that nitrogen was the thing you really need if you want to get plants to grow. And so a nitrate has got nitrogen that you can use and you can sprinkle it on the fields. But Crookes was worried that it wasn't going to last forever. In fact, he thought it was going to run out in about 20 or 30 years, and he said, we are drawing on the earth's capital and our drafts will not perpetually be honoured. Ah uh, Well, this really does sound almost identical to that
1: UN report.
0: Yes, and just like today, it wasn't an unreasonable fear. And this is because the large-scale use of artificial fertilizer had actually not started with sodium nitrate. It had started with a different chemical because previously, European nations and America had relied instead on importing huge quantities, hundreds of thousands of tons, each year of guano. Guano. You mean bird poop? Yep. Guano is an amazingly good fertilizer because it's so rich in nitrogen. It's got 30 times more nitrogen per unit weight as manure, which is what people used as fertilizer before that. So everyone went guano mad and there was a sort of gold rush to find uninhabited islands and rocks that might contain guano deposits.
1: So sort of a a poop rush.
0: Yes, it was more like a poop rush, I suppose you could say. The thing was that by the 1870s, people realized that the guano supply was starting to run out. And that was when they switched to the sodium nitrate. And so this is what Crooks is freaking out about.
1: So Crooks is worried that the Chilean nitrate would run out too. And if your farmers have become dependent on using huge amounts of fertilizer and then you take away the fertilizer, well, your food production is going to collapse and people will starve.
0: Exactly. So that's what he's warning everyone about. But he also observed that there was a possible solution close at hand, right under everyone's noses, all around them, in fact, which is that the atmosphere consists of about 80% nitrogen. So what if a way could be found to get at it and convert it into a usable form? Crooks said this was vital to the progress of civilized humanity. It is the chemist who must come to the rescue. It is through the
1: laboratory that
0: starvation may ultimately be turned into plenty.
1: It's kind of a nutty idea to, to pull the solution to this big problem literally out of thin air. Did people think he was crazy?
0: Well, yes and no. On the one hand, people, especially in the audience at a science conference, knew that there was indeed abundant nitrogen in the atmosphere. But on the other hand, they also knew that it was very difficult to get it to react with anything. It's very, very stable, very unreactive. So building a machine that could make fertilizer from the air did seem like a tall order. But the funny thing is, this apparently crazy idea went on to change the course of history in the 20th century, and it's affected all of our lives. And today, a bit more than a century later, we're now grappling with another global crisis with climate change, and once again, people are talking about building machines to extract something from the air. Carbon dioxide, the main cause of climate change. Again, it sounds crazy, but could this be another case where, as Crooks put it, the chemist could come to the rescue? From The Economist, I'm Tom Standage. And from
1: Slate, I'm Seth Stevenson.
0: Welcome to The Secret History of the Future.
1: Plants need nitrogen to grow, and air consists mainly of nitrogen. But the nitrogen in the air is not in a form that can be used as fertilizer. Nitrogen
0: molecules are made of two nitrogen atoms joined by a very strong chemical bond, a triple covalent bond, and it takes a lot of energy to break it.
1: But if you can break that bond and then get the individual nitrogen atoms to stick onto something else rather than to each other, You can sort of trap the nitrogen in a usable form.
0: And this was just what Fritz Haber, a German research chemist, was trying to do in 1904. He was one of the chemists investigating this whole idea of making fertilizer from the air. And in particular, he was trying to get nitrogen and hydrogen to combine to form ammonia, or NH3. And that means each nitrogen atom is stuck onto three hydrogen atoms.
1: So if you can take nitrogen from the air and use it to make ammonia you can then turn that into fertilizer.
0: The problem was that the hydrogen and nitrogen really didn't want to combine. Working in his laboratory, Fritz Haber had to apply lots of heat and pressure, and even then only about 0.005% of the hydrogen and nitrogen would combine to make ammonia.
1: So making fertilizer from the air was technically possible. It was just really inefficient. Although the process worked, it didn't seem to have any practical use. And that's a lot
0: like something that's happening now. In the early 20th century, people were trying to make ammonia from the air. But these days, they want to grab something else from the air. Researchers are evaluating the efficiency and practicality of a different chemical process called direct air capture.
2: Climeworks is a direct air capture company, one of very few worldwide. And we build machines which capture CO2 directly from the air.
0: This is Louisa Charles of Climeworks, a company building direct air capture machines to suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere in an effort to deal with the growing problem of climate change. The idea is that as well as cutting emissions from things like cars and planes and power stations, so we put less carbon dioxide into the air, we can also address climate change by using machines to suck carbon dioxide out of the air.
1: You can put these machines anywhere you want and they'll still grab carbon dioxide. So the obvious thing to do is to put the machine somewhere with abundant renewable energy, like solar or wind power. They work by absorbing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere in a special material.
2: You can imagine them as very large, oversized washing machines. Call it a CO2 collector. We have a fan. That fan is drawing ambient air through. Inside the machines, we have a special filter material, which is highly selective, capturing only CO2.
1: This filter material gradually fills up with carbon dioxide, And every three or four hours, the captured carbon dioxide is removed for storage by heating up the filter material.
0: The captured carbon dioxide is turned into a solid through a process called mineralization. Essentially, it just turns into a rock. And
2: then we can store it underground, and it's thereby permanently removed from the atmosphere.
1: And then the process starts again. The filters can be used thousands of times.
2: But all this requires
0: energy both to suck in the air and to heat up the filter material. And generating energy often creates CO2 as a side effect. And building the machines and decommissioning them when they wear out also has an associated carbon footprint.
1: So if we run all the numbers, it turns out that for every 100 grams of CO2 that the machines capture, 10 grams is, in effect, released back into the air. So that means the machines are coming out ahead. Using
0: this technique, Climework's pilot plant can capture 50 tonnes of CO2 a year. But given that global CO2 emissions are running at about 35 billion tonnes a year, 50 tonnes sounds a bit puny. The proof of principle is there, though, and Louisa Charles is optimistic.
2: The storage potential is enormous. There's room there for many billions of tonnes of CO2. And, and where we started is scratching just the surface.
0: And how do people react to the idea that you're building machines to suck CO2 out of the air? What do most people think of that?
2: Ten years ago when we began, we were met with quite a lot of scepticism. People thought we were crazy. They thought it was not technically possible or economically viable. And we're now ten years down the road and we've proven that it is technically possible. It's no longer sci-fi.
1: So people have shown that direct air capture can work on a small scale. It's theoretically possible, at least. But not everyone is convinced that the idea can be scaled up. Which is also where things stood in 1904 when it came to making fertilizer out of the air. Fritz Haber had published his results showing that making ammonia from atmospheric nitrogen was possible but impractical because the yields were so low. In 1907, Harbour got into a
0: fight with another chemist about the way he'd done the experiment. This was an extremely nerdy scientific disagreement, but to salvage his reputation, Harbour decided to repeat his experiment and then repeat it again. When he was doing everything for the third time, he tried performing the ammonia reaction at a higher pressure and a lower temperature. And this had an unexpected effect. The fraction of hydrogen and nitrogen that combined to form ammonia went from 0.005% to 10%. The reaction suddenly worked 2,000 times better than it had
1: before. And now the scientific dispute didn't matter anymore. Haber had found a practical pathway for making fertilizer out of the air. The challenge now was to find a
0: way to do it on an industrial scale. In 1909, Harbour demonstrated his new process, which we now call the Harbour Process, to representatives of BASF, a giant German chemicals company, which is still around today. They were hugely impressed and they gave the job of scaling up the process to another chemist called Karl Bosch.
1: Bosch had to work out how to make large steel vessels capable of withstanding the enormous pressures, 200 times atmospheric pressure, that were required by the reaction. The first two reaction vessels built by Bosch exploded after a few days of operation. But after a lot of trial and error, he figured out how to prevent this problem. And by February 1912... Output was exceeding one tonne of ammonia in a single day.
0: By 1914, Bosch's ammonia plant could produce 20 times that, which could be turned into 100 tonnes of fertiliser. This new industrial process, called the Haber-Bosch process, was finally competitive with importing nitrates from Chile. Germany had found a way to free itself from the need to import fertiliser, just as the First World War began.
3: What makes a battle? This is what it takes to make a battle. Supplies, equipment, weapons, made with one purpose and one purpose only.
0: Early on in the First World War, after a series of naval battles, Britain established a blockade of German shipping, which meant the supply of nitrates from Chile was cut off.
1: You might think that because Germany has this new supply of fertilizer from the Haber-Bosch process, they'd be fine. The thing
0: is that reactive forms of nitrogen, like ammonia, aren't just useful for fertilizer. The other big use for reactive nitrogen is making explosives. The clue is right there in the names of explosives like TNT, trinitrotoluene, and nitroglycerin.
1: So Germany faced a choice between using its new source of ammonia either to feed its people or to supply its army with munitions. And suddenly there's a moral dimension to the Haber-Bosch process.
0: Today we'd call it a dual-use technology that has civilian uses and military ones. Some historians have suggested that without the Haber-Bosch process, Germany would have run out of Chilean nitrates by 1916, and the war would have ended much sooner. But although German production of ammonia was scaled up dramatically after 1914, much of the supply was used to make munitions. So maintaining food production proved to be very difficult. There were widespread food shortages, and this contributed to Germany's eventual defeat in 1918.
1: After the war, Haber was awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in recognition of his pioneering work on the synthesis of ammonia and its use in agriculture but scientists of many nationalities protested. This wasn't because his technique could also be used to make explosives. It was because Haber had spent the war developing new weapons based on poisonous gas. Today, he's known as the father of chemical warfare. Haber personally supervised
0: the first large-scale use of chemical weapons in April, 1915, when Germany used chlorine gas against French and Canadian troops at Ypres in France, causing about 5,000 deaths. He said that, during peacetime, a scientist belongs to the world, but during wartime, he belongs to his country.
1: Haber argued that killing people with chemicals was no worse than killing them with any other weapon. He also believed that their use would shorten the war. Haber's wife, Clara, who is a chemist herself, disagreed. In fact, she shot herself using his gun in May 1915, right after that chemical weapons attack in France. The very next morning, Haber left to supervise the first gas attack against the Russians on the Eastern Front. But by the end
0: of his life, Haber had come to regret his work on chemical weapons. He was hounded out of Germany in the 1920s, along with other Jewish scientists. And he was shunned by scientists in other countries and died in 1934. There's a final tragedy in his story. After his death, a pesticide that he'd earlier developed was modified to make Zyklon B the poisonous gas which the Nazis used to kill millions of Jews during the Second World War, including members of Haber's own
1: family. So we have this problem with both the Haber-Bosch process and with Haber's pesticide, where something can be used either for good or for evil. And I wonder, do we have the same problem with this modern technology we've been talking about, the direct air capture process? Could collecting carbon dioxide from the air somehow be used for nefarious purposes?
0: Well, I can't think of a way that it can, but there are people who think it raises its own set of ethical questions.
4: People often think these technologies are a way out. They're not really a way out. They are something that we need in addition to existing mitigation.
0: This is Glenn Peters. He's a researcher at the Cicero Centre for International Climate Research in Oslo in Norway. He's worried that people will regard sucking CO2 out of the air using direct air capture machines as an alternative to reducing carbon emissions.
4: It's very common that people think that these technologies are the solution. I can keep driving my SUV. I don't have to change my behaviour because there is a machine. I can pay, I don't know, $1,000 a year and some machine will clean up my mess. That's not going to, to work. That'll keep you treading in the water. Um, you'll eventually drown.
0: In a paper published in the journal Science in 2016, Glenn Peters warned of the danger that technologies like direct air capture might give people the impression that they don't have to give up what he calls humankind's carbon addiction.
4: So I'm sure we can get the technology to work in a few little pilot plants here and there at small scale but we're talking about gigaton scale, huge scales of these technologies, and I think that's more of the problem. There's no way that we can continue our carbon addiction and also use these technologies because the scale would just be too large.
0: In other words, we still have to cut our carbon emissions. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to get direct air capture to work as part of the response to climate change, but it's dangerous to treat it as a sort of fallback plan in case we can't cut our emissions
4: if we reduce emissions just a little bit slower today uh, and think that we have an insurance policy in the future, then that's risky because we don't know whether that insurance policy will pay out. If you want to ensure a climate outcome, then you're best to assume that these technologies don't exist.
0: But there's a middle ground between assuming that direct air capture can fix everything and assuming that it doesn't work or doesn't exist. And that's to use the technology in a different way, which is to make carbon neutral fuels. So the way I think about it is we are rapidly getting to a state where we have immense quantities
5: of carbon free power say solar but it's only available
0: intermittently say during the day and at really great locations david keith is a physics professor at harvard university and he's also the co-founder of carbon engineering it's another startup working on direct air capture what you need is a way to take that
5: intermittent cheap low carbon energy and turn it into something that is storable high energy density and transportable And that's a fuel, and one of the most important, obvious fuels are hydrocarbon fuels. And to do that, you need carbon. And if it's going to be carbon neutral, it has to come from the atmosphere.
0: The basic idea is that carbon dioxide, once extracted from the air, is made into a hydrocarbon fuel. And that fuel can then be used to power an airplane, say. As the fuel is burned, the carbon dioxide goes back into the atmosphere. So the climate problem hasn't got any better, but it also hasn't got any worse. Normally, a plane would burn a fuel made from oil, putting new carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. But if you make the fuel from carbon dioxide taken from the air, you end up back where you started. It's carbon neutral. So what will these carbon neutral fuels cost? I think they'll be more expensive than conventional fossil fuels, but not
5: much more. We think that within a few years with current technology, we could plausibly come to market with fuels at a manufacture cost of around a dollar a liter. So for Americans, you know, something just under $4 a gallon. And that's significantly more than fossil, but it's it's a kind of price that is already similar to or lower than prices people actually pay for fuels in Europe uh, uh, under the tax system. But you're asking the question one way, and Other way to answer it is how competitive is it compared to other ways to decarbonize the same parts of the energy system?
0: Right. And on that score, I think the answer is very competitive. It's tempting to think that, as one headline put it, climate change can be stopped by turning air into gasoline. But that's not right. The idea is not to use this technology to allow us all to go on driving gas-guzzling cars. Instead, the idea is that everyone does their best to cut emissions, for example, by switching to electric cars. And meanwhile, air capture is used to make carbon-neutral fuels for the bits of the energy system, like planes, that are really hard to decarbonise. And in the longer term, David Keith suggests, there might be a role for direct air capture to remove CO2 from the atmosphere permanently. But only, he says, once carbon emissions have been reduced to zero.
5: Personally, I don't think it makes sense to have really large-scale deployment of carbon removal until emissions are driven down towards zero. On the day that emissions are brought to zero, net emissions, the world will have some great celebration. But on that day the climate problem is absolutely not resolved. All that means is we've stopped making it significantly worse. People are still dying of heat stroke and we still have rising sea levels. If the goal is to bring the climate back towards pre-industrial, then you have to get to net zero emissions and then do carbon removal to gradually bring the carbon concentrations back to pre-industrial. I think that happens inherently slowly over a century or two, but I think it's a plausible thing to wish for.
1: Direct air capture could be used in various ways to help address the climate crisis. It could provide carbon neutral fuels for the parts of the energy system, like planes that are really hard to decarbonize, And in the longer term, once we're no longer adding more carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, it could help us remove the centuries worth of emissions that have already built up there.
0: But all of this depends on getting direct air capture to work at scale, far more efficiently than it does now. That may seem like a tall order, but that was what happened with the mass production of fertilizer using the Harbour-Bosch process a century ago.
1: Scientists in other countries had tried to replicate the Hopper-Bosch process during the First World War, but without success. That was because crucial technical details had been omitted from the relevant patents to stop people outside Germany from copying the process.
0: Those patents were confiscated after the war, and Germany's ammonia plants were scrutinized by foreign engineers to see exactly how they worked. And that led to the construction of similar plants in Britain, France, and the United States.
1: So there's no more need for those Chilean nitrates. By the 1930s, the Haber-Bosch process had overtaken Chilean nitrates to become the world's main source of artificial fertilizer. The outbreak of the Second World War prompted the construction of even more ammonia plants to meet the demand for explosives, which meant that there was even more fertilizer production capacity available after the war ended in 1945. And that led to a rapid expansion in food production. In the
0: 1950s and 1960s, new breeds of wheat and rice were developed that respond well to large doses of fertilizer. And these new breeds now account for the vast majority of wheat and rice production around the world.
1: When President Richard Nixon visited China in 1972, opening up trade between the two countries, the first deal signed was an order for 13 of America's largest and most modern fertilizer plants – Within a few years, China had overtaken the United States to become the world's leading consumer of fertilizer, and then became the biggest producer.
0: Bosch fertilizer doesn't just make plants grow, it makes countries grow. The enormous increase in wheat and rice production underpinned the growth in the world population, notably in Asia, that's taken place in the last 50 years. And more intensive farming also freed people from subsistence farming, allowing them to move into other parts of the economy. And that led to the spectacular growth of the Chinese economy in particular. And it's at this point that the Bosch process goes into credit, if you like. Bosch nitrogen was mostly used to kill... People until the last quarter of the 20th century. But now it helps to keep billions of people alive. The Haber-Bosch process has been called the detonator of the population explosion, allowing the world's population to increase from about 1.6 billion in 1900 to nearly 8 billion today.
1: So it turned out that you really could make fertilizer from atmospheric nitrogen and avoid mass starvation just like William Crookes had hoped back in 1898.
0: Yes, and there's a lovely German slogan for it, Brot aus Luft, which means bread from the air. It seemed too good to be true, but the world we live in today looks the way it does because it was, in fact, possible. But getting direct air capture to change the world depends on two things. The first is pricing. The production of ammonia using the Haber-Bosch process took off because there was huge demand for fertilizer, and it provided a cheaper way to make something that people were buying anyway.
1: Yeah, there are lots of people who want to buy fertilizer because you can use it to grow food. But there aren't a lot of people who are excited about buying carbon dioxide so that they can then bury it underground.
0: No, and it's going to take large-scale climate legislation to change that. And even if that happens, the technology also has to be made to work on a much larger scale. And both ClimateWorks and Carbon Engineering are working on that right now. They're planning to build huge air capture facilities capable of extracting as much as a million tons of CO2 from the air each year. You'd need thousands of them to make any difference though. But just look at the Harbour Bosch plants we have to make ammonia today. There are hundreds of them and a really big one can make about a million tons a year of ammonia. And that's more than the whole world's output of ammonia in the 1930s. So I suppose what I'm saying is when we need factories to keep us alive, we build them.
1: And if you think about it, there are other fields where humanity has built large amounts of infrastructure really quickly. Think of the rapid expansion of railways or highway networks or communications networks or the electricity grid or look at renewable energy. When, when it first showed up, it was a lot more expensive than rival technologies, but now it's cheaper than coal.
0: And there's another way the Haber-Bosch story can help us think about ways to address climate change. William Crookes, the Victorian chemist, assumed that the answer to the challenge of food production lay in chemistry. But it turned out that biology played a big part, too, in the form of those new breeds of wheat and rice that responded well to fertilizer and increased crop yields. So could the same thing be true of the challenge of climate change?
1: Plants are like nature's direct air capture machines, because as plants grow, they breathe in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and transform it into stalks and leaves and roots. So maybe it would be simplest just to plant billions of trees. And there are lots of proposals for doing just that. One was recently launched in Ethiopia, where a lot of the country joined into this effort where they planted something like 350 million tree seedlings in a single day. But some researchers aren't just looking at planting more trees and vegetation, but also looking at ways to boost the amount of carbon that those trees and vegetation can store as they grow. In effect, it's creating plants that are optimized for direct air capture.
3: So the overall goal of the Harnessing Plant Initiative is to tap into the natural power of plants to sequester CO2 from the atmosphere and try to store it stably in the soil as a means to mitigate the negative effects of climate change.
1: This is Julie Law, an associate professor at the Salk Institute, an independent research institute based in La Jolla, California. She's a member of a team that's trying to create something called an ideal plant.
3: The ideal plant is what we're calling um, the sort of end product that we would like to produce uh, from this initiative. The natural cycle of the plant is to take CO2 from the atmosphere and turn that CO2 into biomass uh, during the growing season. And then um, as the plants decay at the end of the season, it releases most but not all of that carbon that was stored back into the atmosphere as CO2 through degradation. And so the ideal, idea of the ideal plants is to generate different varieties of plants that instead of re-releasing all that CO2 back into the atmosphere can store a larger fraction in the soil.
1: This involves crossbreeding, or genetically modifying plants, to give them three particular traits.
3: One, we want the plants to have more extensive roots. Two, we want them to have deeper roots. And three, we want them to have more of a biopolymer called subrin.
1: Subrin is a material produced by all plants, and it's essentially the same as cork. Cork trees just happen to produce huge amounts of it in their bark, which is where we get the corks for wine bottles.
3: And so all plants make suberin, and they put it in their roots. So if we can make more roots, we can have more suberin. And if we can have deeper roots, then that will make the suberin even harder to break down. At the end of the growing season, less CO2 will be released. And then we'll be able to year over year store more carbon in the soils and start reducing the levels of CO2 in the atmosphere.
1: If plants can be persuaded to produce more suberin in their roots, they'll store more carbon dioxide from the air underground as they grow. The idea is to develop these traits and then add them to existing crops so farmers could capture and store carbon dioxide at the same time they're growing food.
3: Soybean is one of them, and then um, the cover crop, radish. And then we're also interested in corn, cotton, clover, canola, wheat, rice, and rye.
1: Scientists at the Salk Institute estimate that enhancing the ability of existing crops to store carbon in their root systems could allow those plants to capture 10 to 20 percent of carbon emissions from human activity. So once again, this isn't an alternative to cutting carbon emissions. Big cuts are still going to be needed, but it could help us get to net zero emissions. And once we get there, it could help us start to reduce the level of CO2 in the atmosphere in conjunction with other technologies like direct air capture machines.
3: We think lots of different technologies will need to be employed together because we're at such a critical tipping point in terms of the levels of CO2. So things like the direct air capture and other technologies that maybe we don't know about, as well as um, you know alterations in, in human behavior, those are all gonna be things that are necessary to help us avert this crisis.
0: These ideas, sucking carbon dioxide out of the air using machines or modified plants or combinations of the two, sound very difficult, maybe even crazy. But so did the idea of making fertilizer from the air until it turned out to be possible. And today, we all rely on it without even realizing it. In fact, for most people alive today, about half the nitrogen atoms in their body, Seth, have been through a Haber-Bosch factory.
1: Tom, this idea that half the nitrogen atoms in my body have been through this chemical process is one of the many amazing things I did not know before we started working on this episode. I hadn't ever heard of the fertilizer crisis or the Hopper-Bosch process.
0: Yes, I think this whole thing is one of those hidden aspects of everyday life that more people should be aware of. Food is cheap and abundant today, comparatively speaking, because of this process that almost nobody knows about.
1: Okay, but just because one crazy idea worked in the past to make fertilizer, that doesn't mean Other crazy ideas are going to work now to tackle climate change. No, and in fact, there's a broader historical pattern here.
0: There have been several crises in the past that we've forgotten about now because they got fixed. So people started to worry about running out of coal in the Industrial Revolution in the 1860s, for example, before they figured out we could just burn oil instead. And then in the 1890s, people were freaking out about horse manure, which was piling up in the streets of big European and American cities. But the automobile had just been invented, so people very quickly switched to using that. And then there was the fertilizer crisis, which was addressed by the Harbour-Bosch process in the early 20th century. But in all of these cases, the solution to the resource crisis had the side effect of contributing to climate change. The Harbour-Bosch process is very energy intensive and relies on natural gas, and it accounts for about 2% of global carbon emissions, for example.
1: So it's like we keep kicking the can down the road with these previous crises, and now we really have to deal with the consequences.
0: Yes, and you're right that we definitely can't bank on these crazy ideas working just because other crazy ideas worked in the past. We do have to cut carbon emissions as quickly as we can by switching to renewable energy and reducing emissions from transport and agriculture and so on. But maybe these carbon-capturing technologies will give us a boost and help us get to zero. My guess is this crazy-sounding technology will, in fact, end up being part of the answer Answer. Here's Glenn Peters again.
4: So you could maybe frame it as an added bonus. So if we mitigate well today and then we still develop these technologies, then it may be an added bonus in the future uh, so we can get temperatures lower than otherwise. I think that's maybe a, a little bit better way to think about it.
0: Sometimes, as with the haber bosch process, we literally can pull the solution to a crisis out of thin air. We can't rely on history repeating itself But when it comes to climate change, it would be great if it did. I'm Tom Standage. And I'm Seth Stevenson. The Secret History of the Future is a joint production of Slate and The Economist. It's produced by Bart Warshaw and Kate Holland. The senior managing producer for Slate Podcasts is June Thomas.
1: The executive producers are Gabriel Roth, the editorial director for Slate Podcasts, and Anne McElvoy, head of audio at The Economist. And thanks to Merit Jacob, Technical Director
0: at Slate. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And leave us a review so you can help others find the show too. Thanks for listening.